welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. My name is Eric Newman, and I am the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. I am joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, the Managing Editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. We're thrilled to have John Freeman and Garnett Cadogan in the studio today to discuss the new issue of Freeman's with a special focus on the future of new writing. John Freeman is a renowned writer and editor based in New York. He spearheaded the arts and cultural journal Granta until his departure in 2013. He has published a number of books, including How to Read a Novelist, Tales of Two Cities, and Tales of Two Americas. His debut collection of poetry, Maps, was published this fall by Copper Canyon Press. His work has appeared in a number of publications, including The New Yorker and The Paris Review, and has been translated into 20 languages. He is currently the executive editor at Literary Hub and an instructor at the New School and New York University. He is the editor, most recently, of the latest issue of Freeman's Anthology, which tackles the theme of the future of new writing, published in October by Grove Press. Garnett Cadogan is an essayist and cultural critic. He is currently a Martin Luther King Jr. visiting scholar at both MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning, as well as the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. He is also a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. He is the editor-at-large for Nonstop Metropolis and New York City Atlas. Welcome to the show, John and Garnett. Great to be here. Thanks. John, let me start with you. Can we talk a little bit about how you define new writing in this collection? Like, what does new writing mean in this sense? I was looking for people who are still emerging and who are breaking forms as they do so. And one of the things I hoped this issue would do is look at the world and not just nationality. Typically, when we talk about new writers, Hmm. we tend to group them in American or British or some other category. And I think this often leaves out the fact that writers obviously cross-pollinate across borders. It's self-evident. And I also wanted it to be not just young people. The oldest writer in this new issue of Freeman's is 70, and the youngest is 26. And finally, I wanted people across genres. I mean, one of the most exciting genres right now in U.S. letters is poetry. It's a very exciting moment for American poets from Ocean Vaughn to Robin Cost Lewis to Nikki Finney and Terrence Hayes and Ricky Lorenzis. You know, obviously, it's mostly poets of color, actually. And similarly, around the world, I think there are lots of new essayists. And if I had limited this to one genre, I think you would only see a fraction of what's happening in emerging writers. Can you expand a little bit about what you're saying with regard to breaking forms as they do so? Like what kind of what formal innovations are they bringing to literature? And also, if you can talk about why poetry is particularly exciting at this moment. Well, poetry, for example, in the U.S. is under a lot of pressure. Poetry is... It's always under pressure. Yeah, obviously. Hasn't it been like defending its right to exist since the very birth of poetry? I think it's more than that, though. I think it's poetry is language under pressure. To me, it's definition. And when language is being maligned and just abused in Mm. the culture, and when people are being categorized by words and pejoratives, there's a great pressure on the language to reassert itself. And it's a ability to express freedom and individuality and identity and beauty. And so right now, I think poets who have always had to do that publicly because of what they are and who they are, have an even greater pressure to put that into language. And they're really succeeding across all the different types of poetry from Mm. people that are very straightforward in writing forms, like Aishan Hutchinson, to poets like Ocean Vaughn, or Solmaz Sharif, who's writing in disassembled syllabics. She's in this this issue of Freeman's. And, you know, I I think it's, it's a great moment. And the nice thing is it's not centralized anywhere. These poets are all across the country. Shane McRae, who's up for the National Book Award, 
lives in the Midwest. So you can't say, let's go to Harlem and find all the poets who matter, as one might have done during the Harlem Renaissance. How do you find that you find the poets who matter? They tend to make themselves known. One of the people I know who reads poetry very well and outside of his own work, Robbie Alamadine, who's a novelist and Mm -hmm. lives in San Francisco, has a blog where he just puts up poems he likes every day. And Robbie's been pushing people on me for years. He was one of the first people to recommend Dana Smith to me about three or four years ago. And for some reason, Robbie is always ahead of the curve in, in poetry. But you asked earlier about the other forms and how they're changing and breaking. You know, one of the biggest books of the last couple of years was Claudia Rankine's Citizen. Citizen, Citizen yeah. And, and the lyric essay has been a thing in academia, but it really came to everyday life with that book. And you realized how if you shot an arrow between the essay and the poem, you could capture a, a lot of the in-between states of existence that she was writing about and, mm-hmm. and the ways in which forms of aggression make those states vulnerable. And similarly, in this issue, Garnett, who's sitting next to me, is telling a story about growing up having Charlie Brown and Bruce Lee be his kind of avatars, ways to weather pain and suffering at home and how they became his heroes. And then he finds a a third way, which is the myth of Anansi, the trickster figure in Jamaican culture, but also in other African cultures. And he's basically telling a folktale. But you begin reading it, and there's allusions to W.H. Auden, and then it slides through a register, and suddenly you're in a a very classic Jamaican folktale. So I think in these times, people are borrowing from forms that are familiar to them and whatever culture they come from, and they're updating them, as Garnett does with his essay. Garnett, can we talk a little bit about that essay that you wrote, which is about your life as a young child and does really interesting things, which we were talking about before we sat in for the show, where you are actually trying to turn that tale into its own Anansi tale at the same time as you are talking about how Anansi and kind of through the, I guess we would say through the conceit of lying, like a particular kind of lying that turns the tables with regard to power relations between, in your case, a vulnerable child and an abusive stepfather, but also can be in all kinds of ways, right? Any kind of like inversion of power relations. So can you talk a little bit about the Anansi tales as like a basis for your kind of writing and then what you make of the power of lying in both, you know, a life in letters, but also as like a way to kind of navigate our contemporary environment. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words. Well, and Anand's tale is effectively a tale about survival and Mm. about dealing with oppression and doing it by way of trickery, by way of a slay of hand. And it's quite popular in Jamaica. I grew up hearing these Anansi tales and it's an import from Ghana. I mean, Anansi's spider in Akan, you know, which is, of course, a Ghanaian language. And there are varieties of the trickster tales, which is Anansi is one of the figures that comes in them all over the diaspora. Yes. Yeah. yes. And it's even popular here in the U.S. I've forgotten the name of the person who has a few Anansi tales here in the U.S., but it's pretty much universal yeah. Anansi tales. But I also wanted to do things with form, to play with form, but also to raise questions about the essay in that essay, particularly because John had said it was a collection on new writing and the future of new writing. And I was a little bit worried about the future of writing if I was among it. <laughs> so I was Why to is that? Ways to justify to not make people question John's judgment or make them question it less because just seeing the name Cadigan made them begin to worry that... My God, standards have really fallen. <laughs> but 
I wanted to say something about the essay, and there's been a lot of debate in the past few years about the relationship of the essay to truth and mm. the ability of the essay to tell truth and the essay and trickery. And it feels that the essay has now sometimes taken on a self-righteous role that, you know, we're here to speak truth to power, mm. where at least for me, many times I sit down to write an essay, I'm more interested in speaking joy to power. What is the difference between those two things for you? That far too many essayists or far many people who think about the essay, who may not even be essays, think that we're in an age now that calls for a level of sobriety, almost a level of severity, that the purpose of the essay now is as a political tool. And so there is a resistance to you know, taking on the dappled things, to hijack German Hopkins, that there is a level of political force that ought to come from the essay. So someone, I mean, you know, one thinks of, let's say, an Anna Dillard who's taken joy in seeing and, you know, who couldn't find a whole universe of epiphanies from her back door to a lake a few feet away, suddenly feels not up to the weight of the essay. That the, the essay's been asked to shoulder so much to almost be a transformative genre rather than something that celebrates the multiplicity and complexity and delight and frustration and joys and annoyances of daily life. So I mm. wanted to make a call for some more modesty, for more modest aims, but I thought were grand aims nonetheless right. for the essay. But I also wanted to show that the essay was also doing its own thing with trickery, that the act of writing you know, involves a certain amount of trickery, a certain amount of organization and coherence, a certain way of trying to or the experiences hmm. in a few thousand words and the pretense that it all hangs together. And so I wanted to show the ways in which essays you know, are all in some sense and announce it, that they're all playing tricks with experiences. And I mean, the greatest trick of all is allowing you to shut all exit doors. I keep saying to people that one of the things that a writer is asked to do is to disobey the fire marshal, that there's so much on people's tables that there's so much you know making claims or holding purchase in people's times you know there's great concerts to be watched there's amazing barbecues to be had there are shows aplenty at your fingertips right there on your telephone I mean on your phone on your cell phone you know why spend time with somebody you know talking about Bruce Lee and Charlie Brown <laughs> so I have to shut all exit doors to ask you to spend that time with me and not get up and leave and so you know, find ways to do that. And so one of the things I was trying to do is play with form, with taking that trick or that greatest trick of all, saying that I will get you to sit and spend time with me and not leave before you finish reading whatever. Oh, I see what you say. So it's like it's the performance and presentation that yes. keeps the reader glued yeah. to the page yeah. for you. And so there's a certain trick, the trick of saying I'm the most important thing right now, that this simple modest this essay about modest things that it's not about the grand existential things somehow demands your mm -hmm. attention and is worth enough for you not to be watching Netflix or HBO or you know your favorite band who's passing through town or your favorite neighbor who's having a barbecue next door so there's that trickery that element of trickery I think all mm. essays do but then also the very form of it is written like a folk tale, you know, the length of it, and not overstaying its welcome. 
I made allusions to Auden because Auden, more than most poets I know, draws on folk tales in his poetry. Mm. And so I wanted to use a poet who the material of the resources of that you know, poet's work you know, is drawn from folk tales. I wanted to have you know, a weak figure and a strong figure and the weak figure by way of some nimble deceit turns the tables and overpowers the stronger figure. And so in its structure, in its development, sometimes even the very rhythms that I've chosen the sentence mock or echo a folktale. I'm hoping it doesn't do it so much. It feels like a facsimile, but I try to do things both with the plot and the form and the very content itself. The question of pleasure has for a very long time been a, a complicated question for literature, I think, in particular, because how much pleasure should we derive from something that can also be necessary or we must read certain authors, right? The feeling that we are obliged to study a particular canon that may in some points, and certainly is at many points, not exactly about pleasure. So John, I was wondering, did you think about the role that pleasure might play in the future of writing? It's a difficult thing to think about. Of course. I wouldn't have put anyone in here if they didn't give me pleasure, which makes it sound a tiny bit like a literary harem of (laughs) many different 29 (laughs) writers, which let's just say in today's age is not a statement you want to make. Of course, writing, the first thing is pleasure because writing, you know, as Barry Lopez points out, it's a series of patterns on a page with some sounds that transport you and allow you in that, suspending you in that net of associations to be another. I think the moment of pleasure either happens in the patterns or in that moment of being transported to becoming another person. So one of the pieces in here is a very difficult piece by Diego Enrique Orsono, who's a Mexican journalist. He's sort of the Kapuczynski of Latin America. And he's writing about a town in, in Mexico which has suffered some of the worst narco violence in all of Mexico. And they're trying to resurrect the reputation of the town to the people who live there by hosting an attempt to build the world's biggest shrimp cocktail. I love that story. Yeah, it's it's really great. great. And he's, to me, it's a clinic in how you can provide pleasure and provoke thoughts at the same mm-hmm. time. It's not an either or. And I think the best writers, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks is a very subversive writer and has these slippery rhythms. And so she can smuggle these incredible lines into everyday vernacular of poetic discourse back and forth between people. Sometimes, as someone pointed out at one of our events in San Francisco, in the heart of her liberalism, she was asking serious questions about the United States about whether it could maintain itself as a country with the violence that was happening to people of color. And yet, it was so pleasurable to read her poems. You, you almost began harmonizing with them as, as if they were kind of nursery rhymes. And I think the best writers around the world can do that. They don't make you choose. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Now we turn to this week's book recommendation. We are lucky to have John Freeman, editor of Freeman's, in the studio with us to give us a book recommendation. John, what book will you be recommending today? I can't believe I almost forgot about this novel because it had me glued to it, like one of those mice that get caught on the glue trap. Uh, I couldn't leave it. And if you've 
mourned the loss of, say, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and just think you'll never read a book like 100 Years of Solitude again, this is your book. It's called Beauty is a Wound by Ika Kurniawan, who's an Indonesian writer. His work was discovered, it was published in 2004, but Annie Wright, who translates him, found his work in a bookstore not too long ago and learned Indonesian to translate it Wow! because it was being pushed on her so hard by the bookseller. And it's worth it. In the first 10 pages, a woman wakes up in the grave dead. She's been dead for 20 years. And she goes back to the home that she lived in. Her housekeeper, upon seeing her, says, couldn't you have sent a telegram? And thus begins a really fabulous, heartbreaking novel about this woman's life as she basically moved through classes and became a prostitute. And alongside of her life, the whole history of Indonesia's 20th century travels with her. And yes, magical things happen. People fly. People come back from the dead. But you don't, because his prose is so assured, question a single movement of it. And to put one fine point on it, within a paragraph, you forget your reading. It's one of those books where you just drop into the voice like you've stepped into an uncovered manhole and are plunging to the center of the earth. I could not recommend it more highly. Will you tell us the name and the author of the novel again? It's called Beauty is a Wound. It's published by New Directions, and the author's name is Ika Kurniawan. It sounds like a real treasure that you discovered. Well, it had a bit of a moment. I got one or two big reviews when it came out, and it's a fat book, beautifully jacketed, and it looks a tiny bit intimidating. But if you open the first page and read it, you'll know right away if it's your kind of book, because I was just completely seduced by it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. I'm so happy to recommend books. That was John Freeman, editor and writer. His most recent collection of essays and short stories and poems is called Freeman's The Future of New Writing. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and we now return to our interview with John Freeman and Garnett Cadogan about the new issue of Freeman's The Future of New Writing. I wanted to return to something that Garnett said about how part of the the trickery that you guys are talking about or the the craft of fiction is to both like hold a reader's attention at a time when, and this is what I found interesting about the way that you phrased it, when their attention is directed away by so many competing forms of media and storytelling. Netflix was one that you were, that you mentioned, but you know it, we say oftentimes that we're in the golden age of TV right now. Um, do you think that that change in the media landscape, which isn't necessarily unique, I mean, this happened when you know films arrived and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not that literature ever, at least since the 20th century, has ever existed in some kind of like monopoly on attention. But do you think that the kind of shifting media landscape away from reading, as I understand it, and more towards this kind of multimedia experience, has put pressure on writers to write either differently, to engage with forms differently, or to engage with material differently? It's mixed. There, there are certain ways in which the change in media landscape has harmed writing. But as a writer, I like to think of it in this respect, that we should never take the reader's time for granted. Mm. And I think the change in media landscape has reminded me, and I hope it reminds writers, 
just how valuable and precious and important a reader's time is. And so I like being able to compete with Netflix and HBO and Amazon and the next out of retirement tour of LCD sound system <laughs> and <laughs> Rolling Stone doing their 50th Circle in the Grave tour. Right, I right. like having you know these different things. I like thinking that I'm not writing in a vacuum. Like being reminded that the people who have spent time with my writing are doing as partially an act of generosity. It's a grace sorts it's mm. unmerited favor and it's then my responsibility to then respond to that generosity with thoughtfulness with giving them something that will bring the light or enrichment or that will provoke fruitful thought and engagement and so i think the change in media landscape in some ways is this wonderful call for writers to treat readers with respect and to value their time and then to write things that are not merely important but essential. The thing I think it does is I love writing that is essential. Yeah. So people have complained about, for example, oh my gosh, Alison only wrote one novel. I said, but it's an essential but, novel. Yeah, but it's a really great novel. Yeah. yeah. And so I think the great thing about the changing media landscape is the way it beckons us to write works that are essential. And so for me, what I think it has done, I think this, at least in the way it has done a good thing for writing is the way it has reminded us that, you know, we can't sit on our hands, mm. that it's time to write works that, you know, earn our keep. It's interesting because it, but it also seems to me that at the same time, you have interpreted it as writing something essential, but at the same time, we have so many uh, writing what is essentially the inessential, right? Like Twitter, blog posts, comments. Oh, sure. Different forms uh, of And so there's yeah. this, also this proliferation of disposable. In, uh, dispo yeah, disposable sort of disposable writing. writing at the same time. But I think it's also good to have a bunch of disposable writing. I like being able sometimes to tune in and. I mean, for example, when they were arguing about you know, the Supreme Court and affirmative action, it was fun to spend in an hour reading all these tweets about Becky with the bad grades. <laughs> and, <you laughs> oh, know, right, right, right. It was so accurate. these memes. <laughs> like, and so there is a humor. And I think it also at least helps you, you know, as a writer, there is an immediate responsiveness yeah. to social media, which has its disadvantages. So, for instance, if someone has misidentified someone you know, as a perpetrator for a crime that by the time they've figured out that they've made an error in that person's life has been dragged through you know who knows you know what mud and mm. you know left vulnerable to attacks or threats you know you know innocent person but then there are other ways in which you know immediate responsiveness in humor that something happens and you're apt to like you know, start steaming through the ears and then you say something like, oh, Becky with the bad grades. And then, you know, all these you know, hilarious responses or somebody makes a faux pas and then somebody jumps in and <laughs> they're having variations, you know, on mm -hmm. that awful theme. And so I think that immediate responsiveness then also gives you, you know, I mean, apart from just the delight of that, you know, and the you know, reprieve, but also the way it feeds back into your own writing, the way that helps shapes your writing, the way, you know, you think of different 
relationships to time and the way you're writing and this relationship to time works. I think some of the immediacy you know, feeds back into the work. And so you write sometimes or trying to have that immediacy, trying to write some things that happened. So after the election, I wrote something like the day after and it was there. It needed a more immediate response. Right. right. Whereas I've been working on something in Charlottesville and it feels like it's not ending. I've been plugging away on it for the last two years and I'm still turning it over in my head and taking my time with it. So... What do you think is um, keeping you from finishing it? Well, good and bad things. The bad thing is that I remember a f- friend saying to me ages ago, um, advice that I wish I could inhabit better, um, that perfect is the enemy of done. So mm. I lean sometimes <laughs> on the side of perfectionism, which is why it's great to have an editor like John, who's like, give me the damn thing. And <laughs> it's done. Right. Um, the problem is he never is, sleeps. I can never. I, I have to. I have to sneak into his room and sort of take his laptop from him. Sometimes. <laughs> 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 it's really hard to get get it away from him. Yeah. Actually, well, on that topic, right right before we started, we were talking um, about you uh, you two touring together and traveling together. Well, how has that been? It's been a lot of fun. I have to say. I mean, we've. The relationship I have with Garnett is the most collaborative editorial relationship I've ever had. And in some ways, uh, here, I'll give you an example. Um, One of the pieces he wrote for the first issue of Freeman's, which is now a kind of classic essay, which sounds ridiculous because it's just two years old. But we posted it on LitHub. It's been read, I think, around 700,000 times. It's called Black and Blue. And it's about walking... Um, in New Orleans, um, in in Kingston, and in New York, and it was published right after the um, Eric Garner assault, if, if you could call it that. And it's a beautiful essay, but Garnett was struggling with it um, in conversation. We assembled it kind of together, and then he elaborated on it, and then began to send me the essay paragraph by paragraph. <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him that this makes it very hard to kind of um, see, feel the arc of the essay. Yeah. Yeah. But I would the, be upset yeah. if a writer did that to me. And, but yeah, uh, only a moron does something like that. <laughs> no, it, yeah. it just, you, you needed yeah. to get it out that way. And, you know, you were talking about Twitter and the fact that we're all using disposable forms of writing. And there's always been a pendulum swing in, the, in this country between forms of written communication and oral communication. So during the heyday of the telegram and people were sending as many telegrams, you know, as we are sending emails to some degree. And people were sending postcards and letters. And then with the rise of the telephone, people began to use their voice. And with the rise of the home computer and the handheld smartphone, people were going back to um, text-based communication. And across that, that period, no one ever stopped reading. But I think one thing that starts to get lost is just the forms of oral uh, storytelling. And Garnett, among many things, um, a great chef, great DJ, etc., he's a very, very good oral storyteller, and he thinks that way. Um, and so traveling around like this is a chance to basically um, see where his mind is going and then to kind of you know, dip my finger in and sort of point the river in one direction and see what happens. That's nice. And I, so I also had a question for you, John. That so I was, I was curious about when when you hear something like the future of new writing. Um, one of the things that I thought of was also, and you know, I'm not quite sure where this kind of writing is at the moment. But somebody like Kenneth Goldsmith, and mm. um, you know, reprinting the weather, printing out the internet, um, 
of course, he did that disastrous reading at Brown, I think a couple of years ago, where you read the autopsy of uh, Michael Brown. Is there a way that how or how do you... So my question, I think, is how do you think of conceptual writing when you think about new writing and the breaking of forms? Do you, there's, is that something some you consider? Here. There is some in here. Um, Atina Faroksad is a Swedish-Iranian poet. Her first book came out last year in translation here called White Blight. And she's from the Iranian diaspora and is from the kind of family that was leftist and not in favor of the Shah, experienced um, punishment and persecution and uh, surveillance. And so her first book is about all those things, but also the erasure of them when she moves to a new country and suddenly is you know, about to start having her own family. And she actually has parts of the, um, the poem redacted. Um, part, parts of the poem are actual and then are redacted. Um, and, and there's a tiny bit of that in her poems in this issue. Solma Sharif is another example in her first book, Look. She used Department of Defense handbook terms like the term look in the Department of, of Defense uh, handbook means the period during which a landmine is receptive to influence. And so she takes these words um, which have been weaponized by war and then renatures them by using them in poems about her family and their, their lives and, and their deaths. Um, her, fa- her uncle died in the Iran-Iraq war and her father moved to the United States. And it's a beautiful kind of... Um, act of, of um, what was it that Isaac Newton believed in, you know, that you could kind of change the, the, the element, elemental nature of a thing. Hmm. Um, and I, I, there's a term for this, which I'm, isn't coming to me, but that's essentially what she's doing with language. So I think conceptual work. Mm-hmm. Is this alchemy? Is that alchemy. what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's, it's a form of alchemy, what she's doing. And I think conceptual work, though it m- doesn't always have the kind of shapeliness of... Um, non-conceptual work mm. the the after effects of it have the ha, still can i think have very beautiful effects but there's a next wave break in form i think is less obvious that we always think of it in the obvious shape you know or in terms of source it sometimes feels like a kind of reduction criticism but there are other ways of breaking form seen in different writers here or ways in which i sometimes try to break form myself i'm not sure how successful i am and deciding how we're going to look like in the way we look over our shoulders so in other words I'm not bothered or overly interested whether I have approval from American gatekeepers let's put it that way Mm. Uh, or growing up in Jamaica as I did where you know often the real or imagined gatekeepers were British in a way you're told, oh, America has no literature, the only literature is English literature, British literature, to write without looking over your shoulder that way, to just write looking ahead. So when I was writing the piece, for instance, I was more interested in what are the shape of Anansi folktales? What are the shape of African folktales? What are the shape of Jamaican folktales? And I was less concerned with the approval of you know those who are looking over your shoulder. And so there are people who are writing not looking over their shoulders and so the form is happening in in different ways in your perceived audience or your relationship with the audience or that person or the people who stand between you and the audience the way people are sort of scurrying them out of the way to you know begin speaking 
with a voice that sings a lot more beautifully, I think, and less throat clearing, which is meant to appease those who they think are watching. Yeah, Ayi, who's in this issue, who was a provincial policeman in China, writes kind of like a combination of Bolaño and Elmer Leonard. Um, and his story in here is hilarious. And it's, it's a fantastic detective story, yeah. which is both like absurd and deeply interesting. And it's about two guys looking mm-hmm. for yeah. a wheel. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a wheel that they never find, but that's not really the point of the story. To me, they yeah, were kind of like Rosencrantz and Gilderstein, yeah. you know, wandering around doing an, on an absurd errand. Uh, one thing just to kind of wrap up here, there's an implicit claim in all of the writers and the works that you've collected here, but also one that's very explicit in your introduction, um, which is effectively about the kind of ethical imperative of cosmopolitan reading, right? Borderless reading, transnational reading. And one of the things that I particularly appreciate is to decenter our own uh, habitation, like our own country or language as the site from which we read and what we read about. I share that kind of utopian optimism, but we are also living in an age in which that seems to be ebbing or in which there's like, at the very least, like a to me, quite frightening challenge to that idea. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the force of this type of new writing as a political type of um, activity, that doing the kind of reading that you're curating for us here is itself under undergirded by a political imperative that you share and that perhaps is part of new writing as you're conceiving it. Of course, but uh, if you think in aesthetics and in politics, all the movements which gradually began to change what we would call the mainstream or how people live began marginally. Mm. You know, nonviolence was a marginal movement. You know, Martin Luther King was a marginal figure before he became a major figure. Then he became a threatening figure. Uh, similarly, modernism was a marginal movement. It was supported by wealthy people publishing small journals, the Little Review, you know, Jane Heap's mm. journal published Ulysses. And yet, so many writers today have to grapple with the way that um, James Joyce and and Virginia Woolf have changed, altered what we think consciousness feels like on the page. And so, yes, absolutely, there, this this accepts that it's marginal, but it believes in the power of margin, marginalia in, in terms of politics and aesthetics. So I believe that, um, you know, look at our country. One of the most popular recent books is a 3,500-page quasi-memoir by a Norwegian in which very little happens. If that can succeed and break through into the mainstream, I have have a lot of confidence that someone like Edouard Louis, um, Mm. who's written this amazing autofiction called the, the the end of Eddie. Oh, the end of Eddie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which is to fantastic. me is one of the great new coming, coming, coming out stories. Yeah. You know, this boy growing up in a provincial village in France is bullied. Well, in a coming out story, that's not entirely just about coming out. It's no. very much about the place where he's from and yeah. the culture that he comes from. And yeah. he, that, that's the great thing about it. It's not, it's not the individual. It's in not just vacuum. one thing. Yeah. No. It's, and it's about how these things are inseparable, how he can never um, separate from, that village and its working class thing, because by developing his voice in the course of that book, he he develops a second self in a way that makes him sensitive to the fact that the people where they're from, where he's from, don't have a second self. They don't get represented in the media. They don't have a, a an alternate sort of imaginary world in which they're de- depicted by Hollywood or whatever. They're the, all they have is their one life, mm-hmm. um, and I think that makes him both angry to be abused 
up where he grew up, but simultaneously deeply sympathetic because he's lived under the same restrictions, but just from a very different angle. All right. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with John Freeman and Garnett Cadogan about the new issue of Freeman's called The Future of New Writing. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour. Thank you.